As you may know, the past fall, we had a variety of racial tensions in our nation arising in Ferguson, New York, and around the country. And many of you have had burdens, rightly so, for a variety of reasons. And during this time, I was praying about how to lead uh, our congregation and talk about race and the church. I brought it before our elders, and we prayed about it and talked about it. And we agreed that the, the man to help us get this conversation started is a man named Bill Reed. You may not know that we are actually part of a denomination. Did you know that? Evangelical Free Church of America. And Bill Reed is our district superintendent. Bill uh, was a businessman for a while and uh, opened some pharmacies. And he was also a pastor on the south side for 16 years. And he has been serving as our regional district superintendent for many, many years. I've known Bill for about 11 years, and I would classify him as a modern-day Apostle Paul, as he pastors pastors. And if you ever have a chance to interact and talk with Bill, he even echoes the heart of Paul in the way that he talks. He, his words are biblical words of love and compassion for pastors and for others. I am very excited to have Bill here this morning. So, Bill, come on up and bring us the word. Thank you, Pastor Jason. The year was 1965. An 18-year-old African-American fellow boarded a Greyhound bus for the four-and-a-half-hour trip <clears throat> excuse me, to New Orleans, Louisiana, where he was attending college. When the bus pulled into Biloxi, Mississippi, for the passengers to be let off and picked up and for a restroom break, the young African-American got off the bus to use the restroom, and he saw a sign that said, colored, and arrows pointing to the back of the bus depot. Several hours later, the bus pulled into Gulfport, Mississippi, for the passengers to get a bite to eat. The young African-American guy, he got off the bus, and he was confronted with a sign on the restaurant's door that said, white only. And so the young man got back onto the bus and sat down. This young man was experiencing the humiliating effects of racism. And my brothers and sisters, I stand before you this morning as someone who has experienced racism firsthand, as someone who is very familiar with racism. You see, because I am that 18-year-old African-American. I have lived with racism all of my life. I have lived through Jim Crow. I've lived through segregation. I've lived through all manner of atrocities and dehumanizing injustices. And I do not stand before you this morning professing that I'm a pundit or an authority on racial issues, but I have lived 65 years in America, 23 years in the South, in Louisiana and Alabama, and 45 years here in Illinois. And so I may know 
a little bit about racism. I'm grateful to the leadership of Evanston Bible Fellowship for deeming me as someone appropriate to address the topic, the church, a response to racism in light of recent racial tensions across America. A disclaimer. I will not attempt to adjudicate or try again the recent deaths in Ferguson, Missouri, or Staten Island, New York, which sparked and and intensified anew racial issues in America. Rather, my purpose, our purpose this morning, is to address the church's response to what has happened in America. In fact, I submit to you that today, Racial, the racial climate of today is an opportunity for us, the church, to address racism. My brothers and sisters, I'm convinced that the church, his church, is called to stand firm against racism. And so our task in the few moments that we have is to make some observations about the church in this climate of racial tension. But before we do, let's pray. Father, as we continue our worship, we do so sitting at your feet, basking in your presence. And we only ask now that you would open our ears to hear and our hearts to believe and then give us feet and hands to obey what we hear you say to us this morning about this subject that's dear to your heart So, Lord, bless now through your servant is our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. The people of God said, and amen. Find with me Luke chapter 10 and the parable of the good servant. Luke chapter 10, the parable of the good Samaritan. Now, as I've just said, this is a parable. And as one commentator writes, a parable is a representation of a spiritual meaning through material forms. Translation, a parable is an earthly story with a spiritual meaning, with a heavenly meaning. And a parable has a single truth that the story highlights. And I concur with George Buttrick who wrote, that that truth in this parable is that everyone is our neighbor and we should even love those who hate us. Yet, if we look closely, we will find embedded in this parable some observations that we can make about the church and racial tensions in America today. Our text begins, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. The story begins with, A question, a question from an expert in Jewish law. 
As a matter of fact, we could say that this guy had his Ph.D. in Old Testament scriptures. And so his question was not one seeking information, but rather his question was one to test Jesus, hoping that Jesus would say something that would be against or contrary to the scriptures. Nevertheless, Jesus responds with a question, pointing this legal expert to the law, to the Torah. What do the scriptures say? Jesus asked him. And the, the expert's response indicates that indeed he may have a PhD. His, his response gives indication of his knowledge of the scripture. Love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. He's quoting here Leviticus 19 and 8 and Deuteronomy 6 and 5. And this highlights then our first observation this morning, the position of the church. Jesus pointed the legal expert to the scriptures. And the legal expert quoted from the scriptures. And so as we have our discussion this morning about the church's response in today's climate of racial tension, it's critical that the position of the church is based on the word of God, based on the truth. And by truth, I mean the scripture, the written word. The, 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 the full body of revealed scripture and the incarnate word, the living word, Jesus Christ, the incarnate truth. Jesus himself prayed in John 17 that we would be sanctified by the truth. And he proclaimed that the word of God is truth. And John 1.17 furthermore declares that grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Does it then not follow that the church should stand firm on the truth? That the church should stand firm on the good news that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He went to Calvary's cross where he was crucified and he died. And they took him down from the cross and placed him in a dark, cool, dreary tomb. And there he lay. And Satan and all of his boys were rejoicing because the king of kings and the Lord of lords was dead. And they parted Friday, Saturday, but early Sunday morning. Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, he shattered the shackles of sin. He cut the chains of death. He broke the bonds of the grave, and he was raised up from the dead. And after walking on earth for for 40 days, Jesus was standing with his apostles, and as he was standing there talking to them, he was taken up. He was just taken up into the sky. And as they stood there watching, a, a cloud hid him from sight. And suddenly there appeared two men dressed in white, angels. And he said, you men of Galilee, why are you standing here gazing at this Jesus? This same Jesus who is going away is going to come back. And saints, right now, 
this same Jesus. He sits in heaven's glory, making intercession for you and for me. And the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that one day soon this same Jesus shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ, those who died believing in Jesus Christ, their bodies will be raised up from the dead. And we who are yet alive, we shall be changed in a moment, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. This corruption will put on incorruption. This perishable will put on imperishable. And we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Saints, this is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And this truth has empowered the church with power and authority to stand firm against racism. Our text continues. Verse 28. Yes, you, you got it right, Mr. Legal Expert, says Jesus. If, if you believe this truth, you will have eternal life. But, verse 29, but is a conjunction that, that introduces a contrast. But he wanted, the legal expert, he, he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, Jesus has told the legal expert what he should do. But in contrast, the legal, legal expert, he wants to justify himself. He feels as if Jesus has upstaged him. Jesus, come on. You, you know I know the Torah. You know the Torah. But you know our teaching as well, which says that only our race, those who are like me, only they are my neighbors. So why are you giving me such a hard time? Verse 30, a man, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, man here, we, we aren't told uh, his ethnicity, his race was not given, but apparently he was a fellow Jew like the priest in Levi that we shall see later in the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, this, this, this journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was about a 20-mile trip, and it was composed of treacherous terrain. And it had many places where the bad guys, where the robbers, could hide and, and, and spring these surprise attacks on those who would be traveling through. It was so notorious for its criminal acts and in injuries to travelers that it became known as the bloody way. Verse 31, 32. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Can't you hear this, this Levite and... And this priest saying, oh, man, 
I feel so sorry for this guy. Look at him there, just, just bleeding. But you know, I'm almost late for my temple duty, so I, I have to get on to the temple. I just am so sorry for him. Verse 33, but here comes another contrast. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. In contrast to what the priest and the Levite did, the Samaritan did not cross over to the other side of the road. No, the text says that he went up to the guy. And there is also the contrast here between two Jews, the priest and the Levite, who on one hand would not help a fellow Jew. And based on the Torah, as this legal expert had so rightly said, these were Jews, and so then they are your neighbor, and you should help a fellow Jew. And they didn't. But on the other hand, the Samaritan helped a Jew, which is a no-no. You see, with the introduction of a Samaritan into the story, Jesus is striking a death blow to racism. Because these Samaritans were known as and called half-breeds. When the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered, many of the, the Jews, and by the way, Samaria was the capital city of Israel, the northern kingdom, and many of them were taken from Samaria and taken to Assyria. But those who remained in Samaria, they married foreigners. And the result was the Samaritans, this half-breed of people. And these half-breeds were hated by the pure Jews. And they were considered to be inferior. And for this reason, Jews would not associate with Samaritans. Saints, this was purely and simply racism. By definition, racism is abusive and aggressive behavior toward another race, believing that one's own race is superior and hence has the right to dominate another race, which results in injustice and discrimination. And this racism by the Jews and their hatred of the Samaritans did not impact the Samaritans' action. No, the text says that he had pity on him. He had compassion on him. And at this point, our second observation is evident. The problem in the church. The problem in the church. Rather than standing firm on the truth and therefore standing firm against racism, the church has crossed over to the other side of the road. We seem to be too busy doing church rather than being the church and confronting and standing firm against racism. The problem in the church is the church is suffering from debating racism. We have been debating racism since slavery, and we continue to debate it today. 
The church is suffering from denying racism. Too often the debate concludes with denial. Denial that racism even exists. Somebody here has heard somebody say, if not, maybe say it yourself. We don't, say, we don't have racism in the United States of America. The church is suffering from disregarding racism. Even when we don't deny racism, we disregard it like it's not a reality. The church is suffering from disobeying God about racism. Now, hear this. Racism is sin. And we know the truth, yet we continue to submit to our racism in blatant disobedience to the word of God. These are serious problems in the church, but all is not lost. Hallelujah. It's, it's not a hopeless situation because our third observation is the prognosis for the church. The position of the church the problem in the church, and now the prognosis for the church. Picking up our text, verse 34. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Verse 36. When, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. The prognosis, my brothers and sisters, is excellent if we like the Good Samaritan, show our love for our neighbors, who is anyone who has a need, show our love for our neighbors by meeting their needs, even when it's inconvenient to do so. And the church must stand on this truth, stand firm on this truth. And we can do so by, one, stop debating racism. Stop debating Racism. For about eight months last year, I had an ongoing debate with my ophthalmologist. Every time I go into his office for an appointment, we'd have this dialogue. Reverend Reed, you need to have cataract surgery. Are you kidding me, Doc? We, we can treat this with medication. Next appointment. Mr. Reed, you need cataract surgery. No, 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 Doc. I think we can do this by having some corrective eyeglasses made. Next appointment. Reverend Reed, you need to have cataract surgery. You've got to be kidding me. I'm going to give me a second opinion. Next appointment. Reverend Reed, you need to have cataract surgery. And finally, <laughs> I had cataract Surgery on both eyes in December of last year. Saints, racism is a thread that runs through the very fabric of America. And it's long past time for surgery so that we can see clearly. So let's stop debating racism. Stand firm in the truth also by stop denying racism. Stop denying it. 
The check engine light comes on in my car. And I say to myself, no way. This is a new car. And besides, it was just a couple weeks ago, I had the oil and filter change, and I used nothing but the best oil. So, no, there's nothing wrong with the engine. The check engine light is malfunctioning. Saints, I can deny all I want, but my denying does absolutely nothing <laughs> when a week later the engine check engine light is still on and my car stalls on the side of the road. The engine explodes with gulfs of black smoke coming up from it. Church, the check engine light is on, warning the church to stand firm against racism before the racial tension explodes, leaving the church stalled on the side of the road with being engulfed in smoke and becoming impotent on racial matters because we fail to avail ourselves to the opportunity before us. Stop denying racism. Thirdly, the church can stand firm by stop disregarding Racism. In October 2005, my wife and I were sitting in my urologist's office when he rather solemnly uh, reported that the results from my biopsy had revealed that I had prostate cancer. Now, suppose that over the, the next several re- weeks, I reasoned, you know, this prostate cancer is not that bad. I mean, if you had to get cancer, I guess this is the best one to get. You know, if, if I just leave it alone, it'll leave me alone. If, if, if I just wait long enough, it's going to be okay. My disregard would, disregarding wouldn't have altered the seriousness of my diagnosis. Just because I disregarded my diagnosis did not make it null and void. Saints... If I wanted to get better, if I wanted to have a good response, I had to deal with my cancer. And so it must be with the church. The church must stop regarding the cancer of racism. If not, the racial tension will grow and fester and metastasize. Saints, we have to stop disregarding racism, which necessarily means that we must stop disobeying. Stand firm by stop disobeying God about racism. Racism is disobedience. Does not the word of God teach us that we were all created in God's image, that God so loved the whole world? The apostle Peter said it right. In Acts chapter 10, verse 34, where he declares, God does not show favoritism. And remember what James said in chapter 4, verse 17. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it, sins. Church, stop disobeying God about our racism. God has called the church to stand firm against Racism and stand firm in the truth, the church must. Let's notice how the story 
ends. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Verse 37. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is our final observation, the pronouncement to the church. Go and do likewise. The church should be the Good Samaritan. The church should not go and cross over to the other side of the road. The church is to go and help its neighbors. The church should be the instrument for righting wrong, for correcting injustices. The church is to stand firm in the truth, which necessarily means that there are some actions that should accompany truth. And the Apostle John, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, he says it best. We must not love with words or talk, but with actions and in truth. So what can we, what can the church do? So glad you asked that question because I still got 10 minutes and I can now give you the answer to that question. Here are some practical actions for the church. Action one, reclaim and restore the power and authority of the church. It seems to me that the church has surrendered its power and authority. And the church has the God-given power and authority to effectively deal with racism, to effectively stand against racism. These words prefaced in an article on the Gospel Coalition website clearly makes this case. Quote, The recent deaths of unarmed black men in confrontation with white police officers have reopened wounds that many mistakenly thought had already healed. We must harbor no illusions about the difficulties facing us this side of the new heavens and earth, new earth. Neither should we underestimate the power of the gospel. The hope for New York and Ferguson and any other grieving community can be found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, unquote. Facing racism is We can be effective facing racism when we deal with racism at its core, and that is the sin nature. And only when the truth, only when the good news has penetrated the hearts of men and women can and will the church stand firm against racism. When the power and authority of the church have been reclaimed and restored, The church can resist the paranoia about racism. That's action two. Resist the paranoia. Did you notice that the Good Samaritan didn't concern himself with the fact that the injured man was a Jew? He didn't concern himself with the fact that the the Jews hated the Samaritans. He didn't concern himself with the fact that they were considered by Jews to be half Breeds. Saints, he did not go there and neither should we. Rather, we should resist the paranoia. Resist 
the delusion of white being right and superior. Resist the delusion of people of color being inferior and that people of color are hostile and therefore are to be feared. Go beyond. We must go beyond having a conversation. Go beyond just sitting and discussing the matter. In fact, I must confess, I'm a bit tired these days of hearing this phrase, let's have a conversation. To me, that's simply a code word for lip service only. Saints, resist the paranoia with actions like those proposed by Larry Elder, who is an African-American attorney, author, radio, and TV personality. He proposes... Join organizations dealing with issues on racism and human rights. Suggest to your local newspaper to publish a special section on racism and cultural diversity in your neighborhood. Create a speaker's bureau of persons willing to speak about racism and human rights. Resist the paranoia, not with conversation, but with actions. That's action two. Action three Remove. Remove the barriers. When the power and authority of the church have been reclaimed and restored, the church can also remove barriers which allow racism. Here are some ideas again from Larry Elder. He offers, excuse me, organize an intercultural music or film festival. Organize a poster or essay contest. Show films on prejudice, stereotyping, discrimination, and racism. Help your community develop a policy statement against all forms of racial discrimination. To these, I add, have events where African Americans and people of color can interact with the police force in a friendly setting before a confrontation or a contentious situation develops. Highlight African-American during Black History Month. Highlight the contributions of Hispanics during the celebration of Cinco de Mayo. Partner with a church of color to implement your ideas and your actions. And here's a biggie. I resonate with the idea presented by Christian African-American civil rights leader of renown, Dr. John Perkins in a Christianity Today article concerning racial response teams. I call it SWAT teams. In fact, if if I had to give a title to the message today, it would be SWATing racism. SWAT, S-W-A-T, Strategic Workers Advocating Togetherness. Listen to Dr. John Perkins' description of the racial response teams. It would be, quote, it would look like a strike force of people ready to move in as soon as a racialized incident happens within a city. Just as there are trauma centers that can come in on the heels of terrorist activity or disasters, we need racial response teams to move in before we start killing and shooting. Imagine, he continues, every city having Two leading white pastors, two leading black pastors, two leading Hispanic pastors, making up a reconciliation force, unquote. I can only imagine how different 
Ferguson and Staten Island would have been if SWAT teams had been immediately dispatched when the conflict began? And what if this SWAT team concept were were implemented at the state level or even the federal level? Oh, we can only imagine. This brings me to the final practical action. Resolve. Reclaim and restore. Resist. Remove. And now, resolve. Resolve to get involved. If the church is to stand firm against racism, then the church must be resolved to get involved. And I realize that getting involved can be quite intimidating. It can create uh, deep fears and paralyzing uncertainty. Yet we as a church, we must resolutely resolve to get involved. During the the time of my cataract surgery, my, my wife, Diana, was doing all the driving. It was sort of reverse driving Miss Daisy. And and, and pardon the pun, but I think I drove her crazy because of my fear of her driving and because of my trying to tell her how to drive and the obvious stress and tension that I felt when she was driving. One Saturday night when we, she was driving us home from church, we were on Interstate 294 when this 18-wheeler pulled up along the passenger side, my side, and my, my, my sight was still a bit blurry and my peripheral vision was not good at all. But I could see the cabin of this 18-wheeler about 20 feet in front of us when suddenly he gave a signal indicating that he was coming into our lane and come into our lane he did. And in fear, I cried out, Diana! And it was in that instant that I resolved that we were hit. But guess what, saints? My fear was for naught. My fear did not materialize because the 18-wheeler did not have its trailer attached. He was only driving the cab. Listen up, saints. Don't let fear intimidate you. Don't let uncertainty paralyze you. Don't let tension and the lack of clarity stop you from getting involved in standing firm against racism. Rather, let us resolve to start dealing with racism because God has called his church. He has called us to stand firm against racism. And it is therefore our responsibility, yea, it is our obligation to do so. Make it so, dear Lord, for the sake of Jesus and for your glory, make it so. Would you pray with me? That is indeed our prayer, O Lord, that you would make it so. Would you show us, your people, 
how we can bring this racism under the blood of Jesus' cross, that it can come under the cross of, and all that he did for us on Calvary's cross. And you want to use us to bring that to pass, Lord? We say, make it so, dear Lord. Make it so. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. And all the people of God said, amen.